doesn't care about black people. Radio. 
We are working on making these podcasts available for CEUs as well, so please keep your fingers crossed. Lastly, this is a radio show. So every 15 minutes, I will be stopping the conversation as required uh, by the FCC to do a station uh, ID. So now, please, again, a warm round of applause uh, to Renard, uh, who will now continue with the uh, introductions. Good evening. Good evening. Thanks, uh, thanks a lot for uh, coming out. Thank you for being here. We have a great topic for you tonight. We are also offering, if there are any, any attorneys in the room, we're also offering CLE credits as well. So please be sure to pick up a slip in the back and complete it to obtain as a uh, continued legal education credit as well. We will have the course number. It's listed in the back, and it will be on the screen as well. So we are going to get to it. We want to be sure to ask you all to participate. We, we encourage and accept questions from the audience, so please feel free to ask these ladies some good questions. Tonight, our topic, our conversation is going to be, our topic is CER, the impact of the criminal justice system on African-American women, black women, and girls in a wide range, more particularly here in Louisiana. We want to talk tonight about the intersectional issues that women face, uh, intersectional issues that women face when they become involved in the criminal justice system and the difficulties faced specifically by women. We have a panel of experts in this area, people who work directly in criminal justice and juvenile justice with uh, all juveniles and women juveniles and adults, but more particularly with women. I want to our first guest is Ms. Angel Harris. Ms. Angel Harris is currently the Senior Legal Counsel with the Justice Collaborative. She previously served as Assistant Counsel at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, where she, where she did advocacy focused on capital defense, juvenile life without the possibility of parole, felon disenfranchisement, policing, and policing reform. Prior to joining the LDF, Angel served as staff attorney with the ACLU's Capital Punishment Project. Between 2009 and 2013, she was a public defender here in Louisiana and was a nationally recognized expert on criminal justice and civil rights issues. Angel has provided commentary to Democracy Now!, One uh, Aid, and the Roland, Roland Martin Show. She's also appeared in the New York Times and the Huffington Post. She's a graduate of Georgetown University Law School. And in the spring of 2008, she studied in Cape Town, South Africa, where she volunteered with the university's refuge clinic. She's a member of the Louisiana State Bar. Also on our panel is the chief judge, uh, next to chief judge of Orleans Parish Juvenile Court, uh, Judge Candace Anderson. Judge Candace Anderson is a local, a New Orleanian, born and bred here in New Orleans. She graduated from Clark Atlanta University and Tulane University Law School. Uh, for those who are from New Orleans, and while we've also known people to high school, she went to Ursuline Academy here in uh, New Orleans, the oldest girls' school in North America. Then. So uh, that's where she went to school for all those who were born with that. She, was, uh, she uh, served as in-house counsel as a law clerk when she finished law school. She served as in-house counsel to the Regional Transit Authority and Transit Management of Southeast Louisiana. Following that, she opened a law firm, Anderson and Darrensburg. <laughs> and we handle handling cases, uh, defense counsel for Transit Management of Southeast Louisiana, the Housing Authority of New Orleans, and litigation for personal interest. She became uh, the ju a judge in juvenile court in 2010. And in 2015, until now, she became the chief judge of juvenile court. She works on several committees with the Supreme Court, and she is the chair of the mentoring committee, where she appoints uh, senior judges to mentor uh, uh, new judges. We also have famed criminal defense attorney, Nandi Campbell, who's representing high-profile uh, plaintiffs, as well as the uh, plaintiffs of uh, defendants here uh, in the city of regular citizens here in the city. Uh, 
Nandi is, was born in New York, but she is now in Brooklyn, from Brooklyn, a native of Brooklyn, which is very far off. The accents are similar to Brooklyn and New Orleans. The, uh, from Brooklyn, New York, but she is a New Orleanian now. You know, we accept her very quickly, and she has become born and bred here now. Uh, she went to the University of Georgia School of Law, uh, SUNY College, and she's a criminal attorney. She's an associate professor at Tulane Law School. She's a former public defender. She works in the conflict panel. She's a founder of My Sister's Keeper, a mentoring program. She's won several awards in public interest law. And as I say, she's a self-appointed New Orleans, which we accept wholeheartedly. So if you would give this, this panel around us applause, they are going to be very about women in the criminal justice system. So I want to open the conversation with just giving you guys the opportunity to talk about your work with women and particularly African-American women in the criminal justice system and the challenges that are faced when they become involved in criminal justice and what sort of some of the things that lead them into uh, the life finding themselves in the criminal justice system. So whoever wants to begin. Well, I will start. I, I will start. I'm born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm uniquely familiar with this because at the age of 15, I was arrested in New York and spent a week in jail. My parents, I was born and raised with two parents, a middle-income family in Brooklyn. Uh, they were really keen about saying, look, if you get pregnant as a teen, don't come home. And if you get arrested, don't stop. And so a classmate of mine went home and told my parents. And true to their word, they left me in jail for the weekend. Ain't no time for a bedtime story Ain't no time to sit and cry Ain't no time for a conversation Ain't no time to kiss goodbye Embrace the family that's left behind and doing the time with JoJo. More 
times than other. That family is led by an African-American woman who is now dealing with generations and generations of post-traumatic stress disorder, whether it's based on having a family infiltrated by drugs, teenage pregnancy, um, economic issues. Um, eight out of 10 of, of, of uh, family members that hire me are either mothers, grandmothers, or um, moms of the defendant children. And so when we look at the women in the system, we also have to deal or talk about the women who've left with the aftermath of the men going through the system also. Hi, I am Candace Anderson. Um, thank you for that lead. Uh, and then I get the babies, right? I am a juvenile court judge that I handle um, jurisdictional ages of zero to 17 which means that if they come in at zero, obviously a lot of those are for adoptions. We get child in need of care. I am mainly, my emphasis is on the delinquency side. And I see exactly what she's talking about. I see the product of that generational, generational systematic racism, systematic trauma, and always feeling left behind, not thought of, secondary, and maybe I'm just not good enough. What we're seeing with the girls that come in front of me for juvenile court, a lot of them come in on status offenses, a lot of them come in on truancy, running away, simple battery. We did not start seeing the violent uptick in some of the crimes that our girls are facing, I would say, until about the last two years or so. I'm certainly sure a lot of you heard about the young ladies that made the news in regard to the carjacking and armed robbery. Those young ladies were from 12 to 14 years of age. And again, grandmother and mother are both there father is already entrenched in the juvenile justice system or was in the juvenile justice system, has moved on to the adult system. The grandmother is attempting to raise the children. The mother is trying to deal with what she has left behind in addition to the other children. She's got her other own issues. And so we're seeing systematically families that really are not given the same opportunities. I see a dis disproportionate amount of minority children. Most of the kids that come in front of juvenile court, 98% of them are African-American. I would say the percentages of girls that I've seen, I have probably seen maybe 2% of another denomination, which means that that might be white, Hispanic, Asian, and every other percentage are African-American girls. The African-American girls are coming in front of me. A lot of times we're dealing with mental health issues that have gone undiagnosed. We're dealing with school-related issues. These kids have been pushed out of school. They are no longer attending school. They're being asked to not return to school for simple occurrences. If the school decides that you can't attend school before a judge has the opportunity to determine your fate, how is that a system that's fair? If the school can determine that based on the allegation that you have been charged with, I have the ability to expel you or push you out or tell you to wait until you can come back until you go before a judge, how does that really make sense? We're dealing with the Katrina babies. We're dealing with the product of the parents who were stuck here in Katrina. We're dealing with the product of some of these children that are coming from so much trauma and so many issues that we are not even aware of that they are facing. And so that's where we come in, and we have tried to bring in programs in the court. We have programs called Girls Reaching Out Works Wonders. We have a FINS program, which is Family Need of Services. We have a teen court program. And of the girls that participate in those programs, we have... Zero recidivism, which means that so many of those girls touch the juvenile justice system one time and they do not come back. The problem is that they even have to touch the system. Why are we not able to give these children an opportunity to go before their peers, 
to go before their community and to be judged before they get judged in a court of law because everybody, juvenile justice and all the issues that face juvenile justice are in the news. We're hearing so much about it. And like I tell every audience that I have the chance to speak to is that once they come in front of me, so much of the damage has already been done. Once they come in front of me, they have already either been petitioned by the district attorney, they've already been arrested, they've already spent some time in a facility. And so our goal is how do we get to these kids before they ever have a chance to get to me. What we have to look at is so many of the factors that plague our young women. We have to look at the fact that they rather fight with each other about a situation that they could resolve by conflict resolution. Have we tried sitting down and talking? How many of us don't get upset with somebody in our family? Who do you get upset about somebody snatching something from them on the Mardi Gras parade route this weekend? But at the same time, we resolved it, right? We talked about it. You have those beats because I'm really not going to care about them tomorrow. That's the same issue that's plaguing our girls. They have issues that happen at school. They may be involved in altercation. If we gave them an opportunity to resolve it amongst themselves, if we didn't have school resource officers or police officers that were in school that said automatically the rules state that you have to be arrested, if we didn't have policies in place that pushed them out before they gave them a second opportunity, I would see far less of them. We have found that some of our programs have been successful in that these girls have not returned, but our goal is to make sure they don't get to us in the first place. And that's why these conversations are so important. If you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. My name is Dr. Mark Calendary. With me today uh, is Renard Derensberg, and it's a pleasure today. Uh, we are broadcasting live, actually, at the Ace Hotel in front of a live audience of the Three Keys. If you all give it up, please, one more time. <laughs> Let people know that you all are here. Today we're talking... Uh, uh, to uh, Nandy Campbell, who is a defense attorney, uh, to uh, Candace Anderson, who's the chief judge of juvenile court, who we just heard from just now, and who we're about to hear from next is Ms. Angela Harris, who's legal counsel to the Justice, uh, um, I can't read, oh, the Justice Collaborative. I can't read my handwriting. <laughs> and today we're talking about criminal justice system uh, with black women and girls in Louisiana. Just one quick note from our sound person, if you guys can talk to your microphones, like kind of right up to you. You know, feel it on your chin. So this way they're having a hard time hearing it on the on air as well. So thank you, um, Ms. Angel. Um, so first of all, I love the title of this, See Her, because part of my job and what has become, I guess, my professional sort of mission is to bring visibility to black women and girls in the system because often they are rendered invisible, but there is this sense of like hyper visibility. So, you know, the judge was just talking about the young ladies who are coming into her courtroom um, for various, you know, offenses. And a lot of times girls are being brought into the system for basic childhood behaviors. So an argument in the classroom or being called, you know, defiant, when in fact they are responding to the actions of the teacher or something that may have triggered some type of trauma that they're going through. And for me, I think one of the things that's missing in, this, in the conversation around black women and girls is the intersectionality between being black and being a woman or a girl. And that sort of compounds the punishments that they receive in the system. It also increases their likelihood of being uh, sort of shoved back and forth. We have this all, all around sort of paternalistic system in the first place. And then when you bring a black woman or girl into it, that gets heightened. And then you also have racism that then heightens, you know, why they're being put into the system. And then thinking about the factors that can drive them into the system. When we think about 
the, you know, living wage of women, especially when we think about in Louisiana. Uh, black women in Louisiana are actually one of the sort of lowest groups of um, earnings in when you look across the United States. I want to say it's Louisiana and Mississippi that have the lowest earning potential for black women. And so we wonder why, you know, they're being arrested for status offenses. Status offenses are, you know, petty thefts or things that are providing the necessities for what they need. And when we see an uptick in violence, most of the time, the individuals that are involved in those cases are intimate partners or family members. And it's often a case of self-defense. But we don't have, aside from Nandi and a lot of some other lawyers, right, who are really talking about what is bringing that person into the courtroom? They're not presenting the entire client. They're not presenting the circumstances, particularly when we're talking about women who are, you know, involved in human trafficking or sex work and how they are being um, demeaned when they are being brought into the system. And they, especially when we talk about juveniles in that, and they are being treated as criminals when their circumstances aren't fully being realized in what's going on. And so I think that's one of the issues is that we become blinded to those factors um, that, you know, being black and being a woman. And there are several examples of how that plays out. And it plays out in the news every day. Um, And I think we'll get into some of those cases as we go through. But for me, like I said, I'm, I'm glad it says see her because I. it's time for black women and girls to stop being invisible in this system and for us to actually think about programs that will help them. Oftentimes programs that are um, designed for men aren't helpful for women. Even when we think about the first, the federal first step program, there were lots of things that didn't um, help or impact women who were incarcerated in the federal system. Women were left out in a lot of those reforms. So while there were some reforms that were good about the First Step program, there were also lots of things that needed to be changed in the federal system that only impact women, and they weren't even discussed in the First Step Act. So... Well, good. I'm glad that you uh, went in in that direction because that's a great lead into the idea that what are some of the discriminatory practices that are faced by women once they're in the system, if you can speak to that, some of the discriminatory practices that women face that aren't faced by men. I'll tell you guys, one of the things that led me into the interest in this topic is seeing, seeing a presentation on the topic and learning that there's a practice here in Louisiana where, where men can get one day off for, for working for every day that they are in jail. They can work one day and have one day removed from there. And I hope one of you are familiar with this and have one day removed from their sentence. But that practice isn't available to women here in New Orleans. And I don't know, Angel, you may know something about that practice. This isn't available to women here in New Orleans. It's not that the practice is not available. There's no work release program available for women. But that's an example of... Um, how things differ in the availability of it. Um, You initially talked about um, some of the solutions, and I want to start with um, a conversation that Angel, I think, started and the judge started about the number of African Americans in the system. I always have this argument with people about, well, if the numbers are there, clearly African Americans are committing a lot more crime um, than white folks. And, and I want to say, especially in New York, in New Orleans, the policing is inadequate. So I, I stopped, um, of defending juveniles about two years ago because emotionally I did not have the support needed to keep it up. 
But what I notice is that if you look at how kids are policed and, and how neighborhoods are policed, you, it's guaranteed that in New Orleans you're going to have more African-American defendants than white defendants. And so I want to start off with the premise that there is not this kind of steadfast fact that black people commit more crimes than white people. So I want to start off with that. Another thing as it relates to women is like you talk about simple things where um, there was a couple of years ago we had war on the strip club in New Orleans, right? And no one had conversations about what it would mean to women by changing the age to 18 to 21, right? So this was something that we, we Bourbon Street is not filled with men strip clubs, and, and this they were not part of this issue. But it, I found it interesting um, that we assumed that there was not individuals at 18 who made the decision to care for their family to be involved in this practice. And so we also deal as women with this idea that men have to protect you. So we have that in the criminal justice system, and you'll see it sometimes with judges saying, well, if I, if I release her, where is she going to go, right? And that's a different conversation they will have if it was a male defendant because they feel this sense of having to um, protect women in a way where they're unable to do it. And it happens a lot with African-American women um, because of our history in the criminal justice system. I think as it relates to young girls also, we have to move a little deeper into our history of women, what they're seeing on TV, what representation they're trying to represent. I, I was reading this article about some young girls went into a jean store and grabbed a pair of jeans and ran, right? And it made me reflect on my childhood, how, how much I was bullied because my parents wouldn't allow me to wear jeans. I always had to wear dresses, and I couldn't get a perm in my hair, and so my hair was snappy. It wasn't cool back in the 70s, 80s. Um, and, and the impact it has on the, the mentality of a young woman who is trying to maneuver in this world where everybody's on Instagram showing off their pretty long here and their beautiful clothes. That's that's simplifies some of the things that's not talked about while you're pushing these kids through the system, right? Another thing is, as we watch the news and they splash um, these bad, bad juveniles and the 11-year-old who's orchestrated this huge car ring in New Orleans, right? We notice that it doesn't shift to education. It doesn't shift to less discussed situations. It shifts to we got to prosecute the parents, which once again will bring us back to majority African-American women who are trying their best to keep their families together. So the discussion about solutions have to start with what's going on before the person is arrested. It seems to be like who can we punish because this kid is arrested and no one wants to talk about the education problems here and the fact that these families are being moved out to the outskirts because cost of living is so high and parents have to work three or four jobs and can't keep an eye on their child three or four times. And there's nothing wrong with a 14-year-old climbing out of their parents' window. We've done it. We've did it. What happens after you get out of the window is, is a reflection on us as a community, not just the parents. Yeah, so I'll just add, when I worked at the Legal Defense Fund, I also did education work. So going exactly to what Nandi is saying about us not focusing on education and just seeing how children are being pushed out of the classrooms. And when you look at certain policies that are going on in these systems and the way that they are able to sort of process children through without actually educating them is something that we saw a lot of. And a lot of the cases that we dealt with were, we were still dealing with 
segregation from like cases that were filed in the 60s. And so you still saw a very different education for the African-American community and the white community, even if they were in the same school. So we saw records and we saw the numbers and we saw children not being educated, not because they weren't smart, not because they weren't able to do the work, but because they were being pushed out of the classroom and they were their classroom time was being taken away from them. And so it, one, created a disinterest in them for being in that particular teacher's classroom because that teacher, they felt, you know, was picking on them or making them feel isolated in the classroom, or they were being put into in-school suspension or even being suspended from school. So they were missing so many hours. And when we start talking about solutions and how we can fix these things, we do need to turn an eye to education and figure out what's going on in those classrooms and what's going on in the school systems. We also need to look into mental health services and we need to really think about what's going on there, who's providing services. And I am not necessarily an advocate for medicating children, but I am an advocate for providing people with the services that they need and parents being able to make educated decisions on what medications, if any, their child is being put on. Because I do think when you look at the socioeconomic and other factors that are you know, a lot of folks that are being incarcerated are facing, there are folks who have high percentages of trauma and ACEs, which are adverse childhood experiences. And without getting help for those ACEs, those, they're going to manifest in ways that are considered deviant or criminal. And again, I'll just reiterate, I mean, the schools, it starts, obviously, if a child wakes up in the morning, they've got to stand at a school bus stop at 5.45 a.m., in order to get to class by 8, you're going to lose. They're going to not be engaged. If a child has to wait when they finally get to school to be told, well, maybe you can't attend this school because you don't have on the right uniform, you don't have on the right socks, we already know that we're dealing with lower income. We already know that we're dealing with children that may have a lot of other factors that are in place. Oh, why not give them the opportunity to just get the education? In addition to that, we're not even looking at what type of accommodations that child may need. What if this is just a child that needs five minutes to walk around for a moment, get their thoughts together? What if this is a child that needs five minutes to organize their things at the end of the day, and they're not given that opportunity? So when you start getting in these kids' faces, you start giving them requirements, you start laying down the law about they've got to do this or they can't come back to the school, what are they going to choose? They're going to opt not to come back. They're going to opt not to go forward with their education. If you continually push them back and they're told on the first day of school they're in the ninth grade, and then when they get their class schedule and they get everything back, they're in the eighth grade, and they're with children that are much younger that are not their peers and they're embarrassed, what do you get from that situation? When you then put a child in the same environment with another child that lived uptown and they lived downtown and their cousins and their uncles and their brothers have had issues for years, you're bringing that child into that same environment. And so what we have to do is first just make the schools a safe haven. Everybody needs some place safe. Everybody needs a place where learning is the most important factor. And so once again, if all of those issues are not in place and we don't take consideration for all of that, those kids come to me. Those kids come to me and everybody's saying, well, why in the world were they fighting at McDonald's and ended up breaking the door at McDonald's? So then I end up having nine girls on a simple battery, 10 girls on criminal damage to property. McDonald's then charges the cost of the door to every single parent, every grandmother. Everybody wants restitution. So what do I have to do as a judge? I have to create policy. I have to create policy that says that my court no longer charges 
fines and fees. I have to create policy that says if the district attorney cannot find a viable person that was harmed with a price of what it cost to show that it was repaired, how they came up with this, I don't charge restitution. But I'm one judge in one court in one section. And so that's how we have to create these policies across the board that protect our youth. Because it's not just this generation. If we don't do something now, these babies, these 15 and 16 and 17-year-olds are starting to have their own babies. Where is sex education? Where are we teaching them? Sometimes the first sex education they get is when I'm mandating that they go out and they speak to somebody about it. Why are we not having that in our schools? My own 12-year-olds that attend the school are getting some type of education about their bodies and how to be familiar with the changing of their bodies. We don't give these girls so many of just the basic tools they need. I sit on the Human Trafficking Task Force Commission, which is where if a child is considered to have been given something in exchange for sex, if they are being given, even if they don't even realize that it's an exchange, if they are being used in any type of manner, any type of way, immediately, that is starting, or were they being exploited? Are they part of sex trafficking? And some of these girls don't even understand that it doesn't just take the man in the French Quarter that's pulling you off the side of the street and asking you for a date to traffic you. It can be the young man in your school who's offering you, if you do something, he'll pay for your nails. It can be the young man on the corner that's saying, well, if you do this for him, he's going to give you a phone. It can be the person in your school that you trust that's saying, hey, I'll let you wear this outfit if you come to this party and do these things. So there's so many times we don't give our kids just the basic understanding of what is important, what matters to them, and what's wrong, and what's right. And it can't just come from me once I'm already sitting on the bench. How do they trust me? How do I then call them in the back and say, hey, can we have some honest conversation? Can you tell me what's going on? How are they supposed to put that level of trust in me? It has to start with the schools. It has to start with the social workers. And if the parents just don't have it, then we have to work as a community to help our families. These families are trying. A lot of, you get the flack, we hear about it, about, oh, they don't show up for court. Well, mom didn't show up for court because she's got to get the other kids to school. There's no viable transportation to my courthouse. Go check that out. How do you get to juvenile court? You certainly can't get there on the bus. The closest bus that gets to juvenile court in Orleans Parish is six blocks away where a parent or guardian or grandmother has to walk to get there because when that building was designed, no one took into account the fact that people needed to get access to justice. In addition to that, once these kids come into court, are these matters that are even going to be petitioned? Are these matters that can be diverted? They don't enter into diversion because phone number has changed, address has changed, because by the time these kids are arrested and by the time some of these matters are petitioned, months have passed. You go talk to any of your own children. You tell them, well, you know what? What you did in 2017 was really not right, but I'm going to punish you for it in 2020. It doesn't work. And so what we have to do is to continue to can build these kids up, give them opportunities, give them programs, and give them access to just basic opportunities to do something different. And that's where we can all come in. There's opportunities with grants through so many partnerships in New Orleans. I was just speaking to a neighborhood association on Saturday, and I told them, you know what, instead of inviting all these officials to argue about what's going on with the car break-ins, how do you apply, you apply for a literacy grant where you can invite, invite Kids here to have instructional training, work on a computer, giving them opportunity. I have girls that come to me that are so talented in so many different arenas, but why am I the one pulling that out? We have to figure out well, how do we engage these kids? What do they want to do? What are they interested in? What are their likes and dislikes long before they get to me? If you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. 
My name is Mark Allendary. Today, my co-host is Renard Derensberg. Today, we have with us Nandy Campbell, defense attorney, Judge Angel Harris, legal counsel. I'm sorry, uh, Judge Candace Anderson, I'm sorry, uh, Chief Justice of the Juvenile Court, and uh, Ms. Angel Harris, who's legal counsel to Justice Collaborative. And today's topic is See Her Criminal Justice on Black Women and Girls in Louisiana. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Look, now, one of the things that uh, that uh, Angel brought up, too, was talking about health. And I think I'm happy to have Dr. Deary here. Some of these discriminatory impacts lead to, and the ACEs is really the, the study that shows that the more ACEs that you have, it's a dosage effect. And the more you have, the more likely you are to have bad health outcomes. So what do you see in terms of health outcomes for these youth? And how is, how is their health impacted? Well, first, let's talk about the fact... Sorry. First, let's talk about the fact that because there aren't as many women who are incarcerated or even girls who are incarcerated, they often don't have the same medical access that men have. And they particularly don't have medical access that, or people who have expertise in gynecology. And so you have women who are sitting in jails who have gynecological issues that aren't being dealt with. And so if you allow a gynecological issue to manifest, then it's going to and can create permanent damage to these individuals. And so that's just one of the ways. And so it's it's interesting or sad, actually, that ACEs, like you said, can manifest into physical ailments, and then those physical ailments are being exasperated by them being incarcerated. So it's ridiculous. Yeah, it seems to me that the ACEs are in medicine what we refer to as social determinants of health. And I actually jotted that down on my notes when I first, I think you have, you, I forgot who mentioned it, I'm sorry. You mentioned it. I'm so blown away with all of you guys. Uh, But when you mentioned it, I was really quite struck by that. And I actually put it next to a question that I had um, asked uh, I jotted down for, for you, uh, Judge Anderson, and that was uh, you had said that 95% of juveniles, uh, at least in your court, are African Americans. And the note that I put down, I initially put down social determinants of health, but I scratched that out. And I was just wondering if that is as a result of higher level of ACEs that are experienced uh, by uh, African Americans. And if so, is that really a function of institutional racism and poverty, which I always consider to be just... Uh, Poverty is just discrimination codified into law. We can reverse poverty immediately if we want to, but it's so deeply codified into law. So I was just wondering if you could comment on that amazing number. I was completely blown away. 95%, if you round up, that's 100% um, of, 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 of people that you see are African-American. That is correct. I would, uh, 99% of the people that I see are African-American. And the largest percentage of those obviously are African-American males, but obviously I do see a large amount of African-American females and, again, low-income, trauma-related issues, uh, being raised by a grandmother, um, mother perhaps not involved in their lives, father incarcerated, uh, very often uh, from pillar to post, may live with one person, no set address, um, no set telephone number, uh, have moved from various schools, many different schools. And so all of those factors impact these kids. If you don't have an ability to have a hot meal, a place where you can lay your head, again, a safe space, then those kids repeatedly will come in front of me. In addition to that, a disproportionate amount of those girls are being pushed out of the schools. A lot of our offenses that we get with the girls are school-based offenses, whether it be for fighting. That's one of the big things. The girls have a big old fight. There's tons of kids that get involved. Everybody gets arrested. 
they all end up coming to court. By the time they all get there, the teachers are coming as advocates for the kids. So why is it that we are then positioning all these people against one another? The main person that I was supposed to be able to go to and reach out to for help is the first person that you're having to come and testify against me. How does that work? How do we teach them to trust those issues? In addition to that, I'm seeing a lot of these young ladies that their families are dealing with health-related issues, whether it be I mean, I can't tell you how often I've had a parent or guardian that is not able to come to court because they're in the hospital for something. And in serious matters, not matters, I mean, we're seeing parent and guardians that are dying. I mean, so the kids will come in one week, and the next week I'm told that somebody passed away. So the stress, the trauma, all of those things are impacting what's going on with these young ladies. In addition to that, looking at, at, one, at safety. I mean, so they feel that they should fight for what they feel is important to them, and they feel that flight-or-flight flight scenario, and then they suddenly get themselves caught up in something, and then suddenly they find themselves in front of me. And so if we just gave them an opportunity to voice their concerns, and our program with girls, which is Girls Reaching Out Works Wonders, we have young ladies that will come in and participate in the program. Their case may never ever come to court. It may be one of those matters that the district attorney never petitions. It may be a case that's petitioned and it's resolved, and they continue to want to come back. And why is that? Why do they want to come to a court program? It's because they have an opportunity to express another part of themselves. We're not focusing on why you got here. We're focusing on how we're going to make sure you never come back. We're focusing on resume building. We're focusing on what are your interests. We're focusing on a city that deals with entertainment, deals with food, deals with hair, deals with so many other avenues that if they're not interested in doing what one of us are doing on this panel, there are lots of opportunities to have a good upbringing, to have a good life. And that's what we have to keep reiterating to these kids. What do they see? They see little opportunity. They see little chances in school. They see a place where it's not safe for them, is not comfortable. So what do they do in effect? They act out. When they act out, somebody calls the police. When the police come, what happens? Somebody gets arrested. As a result, they come in front of me. And, and let me just ask, um, is the, the assault on women's reproductive health rights um, do you see that as women are unable to make these choices themselves or sometimes are not able to get into the healthcare system, do you see that that can sometimes impact some of those? Uh, so in, in what ends up happening is without being able to make uh, 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 choices uh, regarding reproductive health, uh, namely children, having children, when they choose to have children, do you think that that is a problem uh, as well? So I, I think the problem is we are prosecuting people for things that aren't crimes, right? Like, well, especially when we're talking about juveniles, we, we are prosecuting, and I've said this before, we're prosecuting them for being children, for childhood behaviors that, and we know this because when their peers do the same activities, they're not being arrested. They're not being carted through the system. And so that's the frustrating part about this is that, yes, you know, these factors that folks are going through, it's causing the behavior to happen, but it's only being criminalized in certain people. And so that's the problem. It's not necessarily what they're doing, right? Like we need to fix poverty. We need to fix racism. We need to do all those things, but we also need to stop selectively prosecuting African-American women and girls. Well, that is, uh, that is exactly what, what the uh, topic is about. We also, we have an audience full of lawyers and social workers. So if you could speak to them about how they could help you and what, what work they could do, and I encourage all of 
you to ask questions about how you can give what, what these people, what these lawyers and judges can do to assist in your work. But if you could speak to what do you think social workers and lawyers can do to assist kids as kids and adults as they move through the criminal justice system. So for me, it's really important that when I used to work with juveniles, I made it abundantly clear, like, I can relate to you. I don't want a, thus, a them versus us kind of um, behavior. When, when I was coming here, I was thinking about something. I, another attorney had posted something on Facebook kind of touting um, Bloomberg's position um, as it relates to um, stop and frisk. And growing up in New York, I have been stopped and frisked a lot. And so I'm really familiar with it, and it took a long time to get over the aftermath of having that happen to me continuously. And what I thought was that someone who made enough money to drive their kids to school, to always be able to know where their child at, that policy is not frightening to them, right? And so what I challenged her to do was to think about if her child had to walk to a bus stop, be on a bus stop, walk back to a bus like have many opportunities to have to walk down the street alone, how would she feel during those times where he was stopped and frisked a number of times? And so first, I think that um, we as professionals, we need to try to find a way to strip this wall down. We didn't put the wall down. As soon as you say Attorney Campbell, all of a sudden this child is like, who is she? What does she know about where I came from? How is she going to help me? She doesn't know where I come She doesn't know my situation. This, that wall goes up. Rightfully so. They have been in situations where people of the professional stature has proven them correct time after time after time. Police officers, store owners, principals, teachers, their parents sometimes, right? And so we have to work to earn their trust first. We shouldn't feel like they must trust us because we have all these degrees and, and letters behind our names. If we approach it that way, we just become another adult who eventually will just fail them. And, and that's what they're thinking. So I challenge you to first give of yourself to juveniles in the hopes that they give back to you. That way, together, y'all can move forward and solve some problems. Right. I, I would agree with that. Um, that's part of my biggest issue is... Um, Obviously, I'm sitting there in the black robe, and I'm sitting up and on the bench, and I have to ask these kids to believe that I want their best outcome. I have to ask these kids to believe me and to trust that I'm going to try to do what's in their best interest. So sometimes in that being said, I mean, I have to take off the robe, and I ask for a recess, and I'll talk to the kids one-on-one if there isn't anybody that disagrees. Uh, a lot of those times, we have to build that trust relationship through some of our alternative programs, uh, in addition to that, I have um, gotten in some ethical trouble in the sense of wanting to be able to talk to a child independently of the parent or guardian. So there's a lot of laws that preclude me from being able to do that. In addition to that, even if I don't like the case that is presented, if the district attorney has enough probable cause and they petition that case, then obviously it's up to a good lawyer as well as everybody involved, the social workers, to tell the whole story. There was a lot that was in the newspaper about a child that I um, adjudicated to juvenile life. Um, and that child, and, and the, a lot of talk about how the system had failed him. And I explained to every one of those social workers and teachers, where were you when I've been seeing this kid for the past four years? Be vocal. If there's something that you know about a child or there's something about a situation, you know, give your time. If you see a child that's 
going in the wrong direction or making some choices that you don't think are in their best interest, talk to them. I mean, let's be proactive in trying to find out the solution and looking at how we can really assist these kids before they wind up in the system. Uh, in addition to that, there was one child that came in front of me many, many years ago, um, one of the first cases that I had, and I kept believing that she could trust me. And unfortunately, she was found in many pieces and parts when her body was thrown from a moving vehicle in the interstate. And I learned a very valuable lesson that I have to realize that these children have already had so many factors against them. And so I have to work to earn their belief in me and their belief that I want what's best for them. So I try to see them as often as I can. If it's kids that are going to actually go through the system, I try to remove myself. That's something that I didn't find out until years on the bench, that it's not always in a child's best interest once they've already been through the system and adjudicated to keep seeing me every 30 days. And finally, one kid finally said, how am I supposed to do anything? Because every 30 days I have to come see you. And so it took that moment for that to register, that I have to give them the ability to prove themselves. And so, again, I mean, it's just a, a case by case every day working to try to save one more child. If we keep one child out of the system, we're doing something. We have seen a sharp decrease in the amount of girls that come in front of juvenile court in 2019. That's the first time that those cases have dramatically reduced. Um, I believe that we are starting to treat runaways as runaways. They are no longer being held and being detained. We are trying to get um, people involved that can get them moved out of the system. Accountability, holding all persons accountable for what's going on with these kids. Kids shouldn't be left in jail because no parent or guardian decided to pick them up. Kids shouldn't be left in jail because nobody can make the determination of how they should be charged. Holding the DA accountable that you got to figure out what you're going to do because this is not a place where they're going to stick around. I think currently we have two, three girls that are housed in detention in the JJIC, which is the Juvenile Justice Intervention Center, which is the youth jail. And so we are doing our part to try to be aware of the issues that face the girls to make sure that those communities are not being mixed. There's not a lot of talk about the LGBT community and how they're being pushed out and how some of the issues that they come in front of us are on and some of them may look like more serious crimes are actually where they're defending themselves. It's up to us to start talking to legislators about how do we change that. We have the ability to lessen the power that the district attorney has, but that has to be done through our state representatives. That has to be done through work, and that's how we all get involved. There are opportunities for grants for juveniles, that communities, that resource centers, that teachers, that people that have just a bill and that care can start putting in place. We've got to take our city back. This is ridiculous that we can house an event with all these people that come in town and things go off without a glitch, and we can't provide our children some of the basic needs and necessities so they don't come in front of us. And we talk about the rash and car burglaries, and it's not just these kids having fun. Some of these kids want some of what they don't have that they see that we do have and that we really don't even understand that that is being fueled by their basic need and their basic want to have what everybody else does. And if we give them an education, we give them an opportunity, and we give them a voice, then we will see that we will get something different from them. Angel, you have something you want to um, Just really quickly, um, I think, I mean, I obviously agree with what both of them has, have said, but I do think it's also important for you to, one, look at your clients, whether you're a social worker or a lawyer, like as an individual, because part of, all, part of what I do too is implicit bias training for defense attorneys, for social workers, because we have these blinders on us thinking, oh, I'm not biased or I don't have biases, but we really have to check that each time when we are dealing with, you know, individual clients. And because we, 
constantly are seeing what we think is the same thing over and over again, and we tend to get into auto mode, and we start treating each case the same way when each person is very different. And I'll also just add the point that, um, as most of you know, in 2016, the women's uh, prison was flooded. And so there are women that are scattered all over Louisiana. And so they're talking about, you know, getting the monies to rebuild that prison. And I think this is a time for people to really step in and demand better. One, demand alternatives to incarceration. And two, if there is going to be a facility, making sure that they have the resources put into that facility to actually give them the services that they need when they enter into those buildings. Add self-care for attorneys and social workers. This stuff is deep. I had to take a time out two years ago. You need special skills to u- to utilize um, or to work with juveniles, specifically women um, and young ladies. And sometimes it, it's required that you take a step back. Don't get in the situation where you need you're trying to support someone who needs support and you need support yourself. So sometimes you just have to take a step back and decide whether or not this is something you can be involved with or recharge, take some self-care time, and then come back um, with a different register. Because I think that children also um, are not going to be supported if you are not acting in a way that's, that's supported of their individual goals, not your goals. Oh, good. No, absolutely. Thank you. And thank all of you. It's been a great conversation. But now I want to talk a little bit about policies and laws. We know that the governor enacted in 2017 this this 10 bills that were intended to reduce the incarceration population in Louisiana. And it, in fact, seemed to work because we have now become not the most incarcerated area uh, state in the the world. We're back to number one. We're back to number one. (laughs) But with that, with that said, with that, those were policies... excuse me, that were in, enacted by a legislature. I know that in some of the courts, what policies do you think we can institute on a local level that would make an impact? I know the juvenile court was cited last year for making policies where they, elim- we, they eliminated fines and fees, they eliminated bail, all intended to relieve, relieve the family of some of the financial stresses that were associated with the criminal justice system. But for adults and for other people, can you think of any policies that you think would work and the moment that we can work with the DA or with the criminal bench to institute these policies right at a local level that would help people locally. And we have about five minutes yet. So. More funding for public defenders. And so public defender office is supposed to be the place where you're not only supposed to get legal help, but you should be able to have a social worker. You should be able to have a mitigator, somebody to write the history so the judge is aware of your family history. And so on a local level, that is one of the things that they can accomplish easily. I would agree. Any policy that obviously would provide a, a team, these children need a team of people that are working with them, whether it be uh, social workers, school liaison, district attorney, representative, not necessarily the district attorney, but somebody who represents that office. Also, um, a lot of times they have, um, we, we, we get motions to release. So a lot of times if a kid is being detained, right, and we hear a lot about whether or not a child should be detained, and, but what we want to do is we want to also make certain that there are certain things in place. Because if you send a child right back into the same environment and you expect them to do something different, the likelihood of that happening is similar to, slim to none. And so what we're asking is a team of people that work with these kids that 
work with these families, that the funding is there, and there's so many different entities. So we have Louisiana Center for Children's Rights, and we have the Public Defender's Office, then we have the school board, then we have the school liaison. So we need to merge all of these people together so that we have one voice, one person, and one group of, of facts that the judges are able to have so that we can make sure that what we put in place is actually working and there's accountability for it. We spoke briefly, you mentioned accountability, and as we close, I really would like to talk about accountability, not only accountability of the children, because accountability is good, it's necessary for people to move forward, but speak to a little bit about, if you could, in closing, about the accountability of the community, the accountability of everybody that's involved in the lives of anyone. I know we talked a lot about juveniles, but anyone involved in the juvenile justice system, and how we can hold defendants accountable. Accountability doesn't always mean punishment, but how we can hold defendants accountable and everybody that's a part of the system accountable so that people are not discriminated against and their rights are protected. I just ask my community, my neighborhood, to not just accept the newspaper version. Um, go into court, watch what happens in court. It's open. You can come in, follow up, docket master. You can enter in somebody's name and see what happens to the case. Time after time in New Orleans, we take the headlines, and everybody repeats it as it's so, and then we have conversation based on the headline and no subject. And so I ask you to get involved. If you have kids on your block, engage them. What is your name? Know all the children in your neighborhood. And so you're not just talking about that individual when you see them on the news, but you know that individual. This is becoming harder and harder to do with gentrification in New Orleans. And so it's, it, it, we have to become active. Don't get upset about the system when your car is, is broken into. Get upset about the whole system and the fact that it's broken and we're not funding it and we're not acknowledging that we have a problem with it. It's not a new problem, by the way. Um, I'm a big believer in restorative justice, but when it's done properly. I feel like now it's sort of a key buzzword that's being thrown around, but when it's done properly, it really does bring together communities and it connects and what you're saying, you know, accountability for all parties involved. And it also enables, because most of the time, and I think one of you mentioned this, you have the teachers who maybe called, you know, or wrote up the student who's coming in and advocating for the student. And so you could have someone who may be a victim of the crime actually not wanting the person to serve time. And so, and that strips away the power from the community. And they feel like they are being, um, that they, they don't feel like there's justice in that, but it's just sort of ruining someone else's life. So I think true restorative justice practices would be a way to actually mend communities. Okay. Now we have a few minutes left. Does anybody in the audience have a question they'd like to ask? I'm sure there must be a question. Come on, step right up. If you can step up. Judge Anderson or any of the panelists, what are the components of the most effective intervention programs? You mentioned girls reaching out, but just any suggestions for programs that someone could develop? Um, I got a small grant through Tulane to develop a, a pilot program and study to work with some youth, and I'm just wondering how to make it the most effective program I can. Thank you. Okay, we good. have 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Okay, so my we, first... We can answer after. Okay, okay great. Yeah. So my first... Accountability in regard to programs is please, everybody stop hiring executive directors that are taking all the funding. I say that to everybody. In addition to that, accountability has to be effective means to reach these children. 
giving them something to do. They love computer programming. They love music. They love the opportunity to get out in the community. They love everything about New Orleans. Engage them. Your own children, if they're not interested, they're not going to do it. We have to find programs that speak to these kids. I talk about all the time, community care centers, pockets in your community where you have something to do. Educational, tutorial, computers, music, Mardi Gras beating, Indian mask, and there's so many opportunities in our city okay, that sit and wait, and we've got to take the whole of. family. Yes, the whole. Thank family. you, Judge Anderson. So, uh, please, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for uh, Nancy Campbell, uh, Judge Can- uh, Nani. I'm sorry, Nandi Campbell, uh, Judge uh, Candace Anderson, and uh, Miss Angel Harris for an amazing job they did. Thank you uh, again to Renard Ferensberg. Thank you to the Ace Hotel. Our next event is going to be on uh, March 16th, so we'd love to see you there. Thank you very much, Sydney. Thank you, Jeff, uh, back there at WHIV. Thank you for listening to WHIV and the great Mark Parodies coming up next with Mega Music Monday. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Renard. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And especially a big thank you to Dr. Mark Allen Derry and uh, his efforts bringing you guys that live broadcast. Uh, 